Hello, and welcome to another episode of Canons of Mass Construction. This is Edward Ornstein, Professor Fodder's teaching assistant and a member of the Southeastern Muscogee Nation. Thank you for tuning in. Last episode, we finished up a three-part series on environmental and land use laws in Indian country, and this episode will be turning to natural resource development. In particular, we'll be discussing a lot of natural resource development leases and joint venture agreements, the means by which tribes can capitalize on their reservation natural resources, and how the federal trust responsibility shapes and regulates these contracts. To give a quick overview of natural resources in Indian country, about 56.2 million acres are federal trust land. 10 million acres of which are being held in trust for individuals. The vast majority of this acreage are grasslands, while about 16 million acres are forest lands, about 7 million acres of which are suitable for commercial logging. 3 to 4% of all known oil and gas reserves in the nation are on Indian land, and a third of all coal west of the Mississippi. A third of the nation's uranium composing about 15 million acres of undeveloped energy resources. So a lot of money and resources are at play in this field of law. Tribal options for natural resource development are threefold. They include direct development, development by delegation through 638 contracts, part of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975, which allows uh, tribes to take a delegation of federal authority to manage their own resources, or indirect development through leases with non-Indian resource companies, which are most common. Now, the federal authority to regulate uh, Native American resources in this manner stems from the Non-Intercourse Act, which prohibits grant, lease, or conveyance of Indian lands without federal approval. The Department of the Interior approves leases and direct development programs, and takes upon itself the trust responsibility to protect and support tribes once a lease is approved. It is an open question how hands-on or hands-off the federal government should be in its trust responsibility, and that tension is what we'll dive into first. According to Chambers and Price, in Regulating Sovereignty, Discretion, and the Leasing of Indian Land, Leases have consequences that the Department of the Interior largely ignores in its decision to approve or disapprove of a lease. Those leases bring non-Indians onto the reservation, who can be hard to hold accountable for their crimes. Resource extraction man camps have been closely linked to the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women. States may be tempted to try to exercise tax powers over the reservation once some of these leases begin and there may be interference with tribal control over the society and culture on the reservation. Even within the realm of resource leasing, tribes can mitigate risks to the community by tying leases to multi-purpose resource development plans to balance economic and cultural goals, or tribes can simply lease their land for the maximum profit. The Secretary of the Interior's role in all of this, is inherently paternalistic, and the secretary has unconfined discretion to approve or deny leases. But the secretary can also play a major role in making leases more equitable, instead of just interpreting a trusteeship responsibility 
as meaning that tribes must get a fair price, if a lease contains a variety of goals, including the preservation of the tribe's land base, protection of the tribe's political existence, and the preservation of the reservation environment and tribal participation in the enterprise, the secretary, uh, upon evaluating those criteria, could become a key actor to enforce those other goals and responsibilities. But this has not been the dominant paradigm. One of the readings that we've been looking at in our Native American Natural Resource Law class digs deeper into this idea of an expanded federal trust role, and you can be the judge of its potential merits. Mary Christina Wood, in her Protecting the Attributes of Native Sovereignty, a New Trust Paradigm for Federal Actions Affecting Tribal Lands and Resources, states that the federal government tends to greenlight tribal council decisions. She views this as a negative. Professor Wood thinks that the federal government should weigh the trust obligation against the tribal council decision to protect future generations and tribal lands. The professor proposes a three-part federal court review of these leases, limiting tribal government's ability to lease when it would convert land from Indian to non-Indian use, constitute a critical mass of the reservation, or lead to substantial environmental damage. For context, Professor Wood is not a tribal member, and her writings are largely concerned with preventing ecological degradation. So this is not the current dominant paradigm, but folks are advocating in the direction, which raises questions. What's worth protecting more? Tribal sovereignty to use resources as the tribal council wishes based on their own considerations, or ecological protection of unaltered tribal resources? Now that we've framed up the tensions involved in this discussion, let's take a look at the statutory law that creates the framework for tribal resource development. Essentially, there's a, a large jumble of federal statutes, many of which haven't formally replaced prior statutory regimes, but have instead tacked onto them. In early federal Indian law, the Non-Intercourse Act was the primary law in the books, as we already discussed. The Non-Intercourse Act gives the federal government the right to approve or deny any grant, sale, or conveyance, including leases, of Indian land without federal approval. In the allotment era, there were quite a few new leasing acts added to the books to allow for uh, corporations to more feasibly move on to tribal reservations and to develop resources. But beginning in the reorganization era, the federal government began to cede limited resource development control back to the tribes, while simultaneously opening reservations for development. Through the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, through the Indian Mineral Leasing Act of 1938, through the Indian Long-Term Leasing Act of 1955, and through 638 contracts, part of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975, as well as the Indian Mineral Development Act of 1982, which goes beyond just land leasing and explicitly includes mineral development. Although federal policy has changed a lot since then, many of these statutes still have some weight in the law. In the current generation, the Department of Interior has tended to be a little bit more hands-off and often makes agreements with tribes to permit them to develop various resources on their own or in a joint venture with a corporation. 
Some of the relevant modern congressional guidance includes the National Indian Forest Resources Act of 1990, introducing a cooperative model of resource planning, the Indian Tribal Energy Development and Self-Determination Act of 2005, introducing tribal energy resource agreements, and the Helping Expedite and Advance Responsible Tribal Ownership Act, or HEARTH, of 2012. Now let's turn to the case law and see how the courts have handled these overlapping statutory regimes. The first case we'll look at is Blackfeet Indian Tribe versus Montana Power Company, a Ninth Circuit decision that was handed down in 1988. The background is that the Secretary had granted the Montana Power Company five rights-of-way across the Blackfeet Indian tribal lands for a 50-year term. The tribe had consented to each, but in 1981, the tribe objected to the 50-year term, notified the power company, and expressed its opinion that the term should be limited to 20 rather than 50 years. The right-of-way being expired, the power company was sued for trespass. At issue is the series of enabling statutes and whether the secretary had exceeded his authority, allowing a 50-year term for natural gas pipeline rights-of-way across Blackfeet land. There really is a jumble of statutes here, so bear with me for a second while I list them before we look at how the court figured this out. The 1904 Act had permitted the secretary to grant right-of-way easements for oil and gas pipelines with a 20-year limit and more than 20 years would have required further approval by the Secretary. In 1948, the Indian Right-of-Way Act allowed the Secretary to grant rights-of-way with no time limits for all purposes, but required tribal consent. <clears throat> in 1960, a new regulation stated that rights-of-way were not to exceed 50 years, and in 1968, an amended regulation stated that rights-of-way can be issued for all easements for unlimited terms of years. To parse through this jumble of statutory guidance, the court used a three-step statutory interpretation to see what laws actively applied. First, they looked at the language of the statute. Second, where two statutes are involved, they looked for clear legislative intent to repeal the earlier statute. And third, absent intent to repeal, a court will read statutes to give effect to both, which makes repeals by implication difficult to assert. Here, the court found that there was no express intent to repeal the 1904 Act. Instead, the 1948 Act was interpreted only to broaden secretarial authority to grant rights-of-way, and the court read the 1904 Act with 20-year limited rights-of-way and the 1948 Act, with unlimited rights-of-way, with tribal consent, to be coexisting and co-effective. The 1904 Act, allowing 20-year time limits, without consent, and the 1948 Act, allowing 50-year time limits, and the 1948 Act's consent requirement as applying to both. The court found that the tribe had consented to the 50-year term, and the secretary did not exceed his authority. The important takeaway from this case is that the Supreme Court's method of statutory interpretation often gives power to every statute applying to the context 
rather than taking the most recent statute and using it to replace the prior statutory regime. In our next case, Nebraska Power District versus 100.95 acres of land, an Eighth Circuit decision handed down in 1983, the Nebraska Power District wanted to build an electric transmission line across the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska's reservation, which included tribal trust lands and individual Indian allotted lands. Keep this case in the forefront of your mind when considering natural resource development in this decade, as the 2021 infrastructure bill includes $65 billion to expand and retrofit national electricity transmission capacity, and tribal lands often require less red tape to run transmission lines across than private suburbs do. In this case, the tribe opposed this construction. The Nebraska Public Power District wanted to condemn a right-of-way across a 29-acre tract of land within the reservation. The tracts had been allotted as trust lands to individual Indians, mostly, through the General Allotment Act or by treaty. At issue here is another statutory interpretation to determine where a 1948 act may or may not have impliedly repealed a 1901 act. As you're beginning to see, the federal government's inconsistency with resource regulation means that a lot of these cases are going to depend on the court's interpretation of a bundle of potentially applicable statutes. Understanding the manner in which the court interprets these statutes amounts to understanding the common law in this field. According to the 1901 Act, allotted lands can be condemned for public purposes, and Indian lands are not exempt from takings for public purposes. But the 1948 Act required consent of the Secretary and of individual Indian allottees for right-of-ways except, one, where an allotment is owned by more than one person, in which case the majority can consent, two, where some allottees can't be located, three, where heirs of the deceased haven't been determined, or four, where an allotment has so many owners that consent would be impractical, in which cases only secretarial approval is required. Given the fractionated shares of most tribal allotments created at the turn of the 20th century, this means that allotments under the 1948 Act are especially vulnerable to right-of-way impositions. The court took up the same statutory interpretation framework as in the prior case, and found that there was no clear congressional intent to repeal the 1901 Act, and the 1948 Act supplemented rather than replaced the 1901 Act and the acts are not in conflict. The court interpreted that these acts, rather than replacing a prior form of taking Indian land for utility rights of way, provided two alternative means to take Indian land for utility rights of way, either by condemnation through the 1901 Act without consent but with takings law applying, or with consent but without condemnation under the 1948 Act. Notably, this case doesn't really embrace Indian law canons of construction, where ambiguous statutes are intended to be interpreted to the benefit of tribes. But here, the court just armed the state utility with more ways to divest tribes of their land, 
including the more antiquated 1901 condemnation approach and the newer 1948 Act. Now that we've surveyed how some of these federal trust responsibility claims work, let's take a turn to enforcing the federal trust relationship. According to Neil Jessup Newton's Enforcing the Federal Indian Trust Relationship After Mitchell, which was written after the 1983 U.S. versus Mitchell case, the first case where the Supreme Court ruled that the United States government could be liable for monetary damages for a trust relationship, there are now three factors a tribe must satisfy to bring a breach of trust claim. First, the tribe must bring a claim in a competent court. This prong can be easily satisfied, as the Tucker Act empowers the Court of Claims, now the D.C. District Court and the Court of Federal Claims, to hear claims against the government based upon any act of Congress. And the Administrative Procedure Act allows the same for final decisions by an agency. Second, the government's consent to be sued has to be established. Both the Tucker Act and the Administrative Procedure Act waive immunity for Tucker Act and APA claims. If claims are based on an act of Congress or a final agency decision, this can be pretty easy to satisfy. Third, a tribe must assert a claim that is entitled to the relief requested. This can be met, but the analysis is uncertain. Courts look to statutes, regulations, and treaties to find language that would be a basis for awarding damages. Let's look at an example. U.S. versus Navajo Nation is a 2003 Supreme Court case, which is a significant recent breach of trust case. The backstory is complex, but essentially what's at issue is whether the Indian Mineral Leasing Act of 1938, which empowered tribes to negotiate mineral leases themselves where no consent had previously been required, could be interpreted as mandating compensation for the government's alleged breach of trust when the secretary had improved a coal lease with only 2% gross proceeds returning to the tribe, when the federal government's leasing rate for their own land returned 12.5% gross proceeds to the landholding agency. And there was also some evidence of backroom dealing between Peabody Coal and the Interior Department. The tribe had at first consented to the lease, but then requested that the rate be raised after learning more information about their position and the history of those negotiations. The same analysis as in Mitchell was employed here, and the court notes that the trust relationship itself is insufficient to support jurisdiction, so the focus is on an analysis of the Indian Mineral Leasing Act. But there weren't obligations in the act specifically describing the duties of the federal government as there had been in the Mitchell cases. In addition, the tribe didn't point to any statutory authority forbidding the ex parte communications, the backroom dealing with the Interior Secretary, and with the lack of textual statutory bases for the claim showing that the secretary's approval function included a duty, the court reversed and remanded the lower court's pro-tribal decision. In our next case, also from 2003, U.S. versus White Mountain Apache, at issue is whether the Court of Federal Claims 
has jurisdiction over a tribe's suit for a breach of fiduciary duty to manage land and improvements held in trust for the tribe, but occupied by the government. The land in question had been a military reservation in 1877, uh, one that had been established after Fort Apache had been created in 1870. Before the military reservation was transferred to the Department of the Interior and the land was set aside, or some of the land was set aside, for an Indian school in 1922. And then, in 1960, Congress designated the military reservation as being held in trust for the White Mountain Apache tribe to use the land and improve it as needed. So this is another jumble of statutory regimes. In 1993, the tribe concludes that it will cost $14 million to rehabilitate the property, which was a historic U.S. military fortress, to meet federal historic preservation standards, and sued the federal government for $14 million in the Court of Federal Claims, which dismissed the claim for lack of jurisdiction. But here, because a fiduciary relationship was indicated by statutory language, and decision-making authority had been granted to the Interior Secretary, the court found that the U.S. had an obligation to preserve and improve the property. As the fiduciary was responsible, the government was found liable for the breach. Also critical is that the White Mountain Apache tribe never communicated any consent to the federal government to take on this financial responsibility, while the Blackfeet and Navajo nations in the cases we studied earlier in this episode, had consented first, then withdrawn their consent. You're starting to notice two themes develop. One, that when and whether the tribe consents at all is very important. And second, all of the statutory regimes will be evaluated by the court to try and pin down exactly what laws apply and whether a trust responsibility exists. Next, let's turn to another trust responsibility case related to re resource management, a Tenth Circuit case from 1986, Hikarula Apache Tribe versus Supron Energy Corporation, where the Department of the Interior had failed to correctly interpret royalty terms in the lease and regulations, failed to ensure that lessees complied with the lease terms of diligent development, and failed to ensure protection of leased lands from drainage par for the course, really. At issue is which accounting method should have been used to evaluate the leases to determine whether or not they were fair. And the court ruled that when the secretary is acting in their fiduciary role rather than solely as a regulator and is faced with a decision for which there is more than one reasonable choice, the secretary must choose the alternative that is in the best interest of the tribe and cannot escape their role as trustee by donning the mantle of the administrator. And the Department of the Interior must apply whichever accounting method, BTU or net realization, which yields the tribe the greatest royalties. Within the modern context in which the Department of the Interior generally only evaluates leases for the fairness of their financial benefits or harms to the tribe, this was certainly, I think, a win for Indian country. The next case also concerns the Hikarilla Apache tribe. Hikarilla Apache tribe 
versus Andros was decided by the Tenth Circuit in 1982, when the Bureau of Indian Affairs leased four parcels mineral rights, hundreds of thousands of acres of on-reservation mineral rights, without publishing a public notice of lease sale. The tribe sued, claiming that the secretary violated the rules for advertising lease sales and wanted an order from the secretary that non-producing leases were invalid and canceled and asked the secretary to prepare an EIS for producing leases and recommend changes accordingly. At issue is whether the regulations were violated in the giving notice of the lease sale, whether the leases should have been canceled outright, and in response to defenses raised by the corporation, whether the laches or unclean hands defense bars the tribe's NEPA violation claim. So there are essentially three chunks to this decision. One, notice procedures required the advertisement of leases in a general publication. The court found that this was required, and further, the canons of construction demanded that that statute be interpreted liberally in favor of the tribe. That was certainly the best part of this decision from the tribal perspective. Two, the court evaluated whether cancellation of leases was warranted, which the court saw as an extraordinary equitable remedy, but acknowledged that departures from principles of equity could be required in extraordinary circumstances. But the court then says that cancellation is relief granted by court discretion and is not a demand that can be made by matter of right. The lower court had refused to grant this relief, and the circuit court upheld this decision. The third part of the holding relates to laches, or unclean hands. Laches can be found where a party has knowledge of relevant facts and acquiesces for an unreasonable length of time, parties being responsible for exercising reasonable diligence in protecting their own rights. And unclean hands can be found when the plaintiff committed some sort of wrongdoing or are themselves liable for the offense. Laches here was found to be an effective defense, as the tribe had never requested an EIS before, and there was a public energy crisis at the time of the decision that further influenced the court that a change of status quo was inequitable. And unclean hands was also found to be an effective defense, because the tribe was trying to invalidate these oil and gas leases to lease to a different oil and gas company that offered a more profitable joint venture. So these latches and unclean hands defenses asserted by the lessee prevailed against the tribe, simply because they wanted to develop their own resources in a different joint venture. Next, let's look at United Nuclear Corporation versus United States, a 1990 Federal Circuit case about taking claims by a corporation when their leases actually were canceled by the Interior. The United Nuclear Corporation had signed two leases with the Navajo Nation, expended about $5 million exploring and finding uranium deposits, and created a mining plan to extract those deposits. The Secretary refused to approve the mining plan without tribal approval, and the tribe never did give their approval and the Department of the Interior canceled the leases because the corporation had not begun mining in the specified period. So we're actually looking at a lease cancellation here. 
The Navajo Nation controls a vast amount of land on the Grant's Mineral Belt, a mineral trend which accounts for 55% of United States uranium production, and the corporation's mining plan anticipated extracting 20 million pounds of uranium. So there was a lot of financial incentive riding on this decision. At issue is whether the Secretary's refusal to implement the mining plan would result in a takings claim for which the company would be entitled to just compensation. The court used a three-factor non-exclusive inquiry, weighing, first, the economic impact of regulation on parties, second, the frustration of investment-backed expectations, and third, the character of the government action. The economic impact to the corporation was significant. There was an investment-backed expectation, or so the court thought, and the court decided that the character of the action was based in Indian greed, and the opinion rather paternalistically stated at the end, and I quote, the best way to make Indians more responsible citizens would be to require them to live up to their own contractual commitments. As you can guess by this point, the court did find that there was a taking. As you can see in this case, from the character of government action element, and in the prior case, from the unclean hands element, the Supreme Court doesn't like when tribes oppose a lease because they have a financial incentive. Now let's turn to a case that's a little bit more favorable to the tribe. Quantum Exploration versus Clark, a Ninth Circuit decision in 1986. This will be the last case we look at today, and let's hope we end on a better note. After the 1982 Indian Mineral Development Act had been passed, the Blackfeet Tribal Council approved a joint venture agreement with Quantum Exploration. But the Tribal Council then rescinded the joint venture agreement before the Secretary approved it. The corporation sued the Interior to compel an approval or disapproval of the agreement and an injunction against competitors. At issue is whether the Blackfeet Indian tribe could unilaterally rescind a proposed joint venture agreement before the Secretary had approved it. Keep in mind that the cases we were looking at earlier generally dealt with agreements that the Secretary had already rubber-stamped and essentially bound the tribes to. Also at issue is whether the BIA's consultations with the tribe subsequent to the agreement being proposed had violated the act. The court ruled that the plain language of the statute allowed the tribe to rescind before secretarial approval, and that the BIA may consult at any time. This was a pretty straightforward statutory interpretation case, where the legislative history and the plain language of the statute both suggested that the tribes could disentangle themselves from an agreement before secretarial approval and that the BIA was allowed to assist in negotiations. And we can pull some black-letter law away from this decision and know that, at least in the Ninth Circuit, tribes can back out of joint venture agreements before secretarial approval, leaving potential partner corporations with little recourse. So we've covered a lot of material in this episode, but hopefully you're beginning to get a sense of the contours of tribal natural resource management, and when and if the government can be held liable 
either by an aggrieved tribal party or an aggrieved corporate lessee. Old statutes will generally be read together when Congress fails to make explicit that old statutes are to be replaced. It's also real tough for a tribe to back out of an agreement once they consent it at any point, unless the secretary hasn't already approved the deal. And even where the federal government has clearly violated some tribal right, the tribe must generally protest promptly and continuously and take the ethical high ground and not suggest that they themselves would seek to develop that resource, the best to avoid the ire of a hostile and often paternalistic court. Crucially, we can also take away from this episode a framework for asserting a breach of trust claim. First, a claim must be brought in a competent court. Second, the tribe must establish that the government, the federal government, had consented to a waiver of sovereign immunity to themselves be sued. And third, the tribe must assert a claim that is entitled to the relief requested. While these prongs are difficult to satisfy and defenses like latches or unclean hands can still prevent a tribe from obtaining relief, there is now a roadmap for tribes to take when trying to hold the federal government responsible for a potential breach of trust in the resource development context, even if it is a rough and rugged road for the tribe. Tune back in soon for a deep dive into tribal taxation with Professor Fodder, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Canons of Mass Construction.